It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, wonderful beings. Welcome back to another episode of Nerd Talk. And today I'm speaking with Canadian foot nerd, Matt O'Mara. And we are going to discuss and have a dialogue on the topic of obesity, which I think is becoming more and more relevant and I think is something that's quite misunderstood. So Matt, thanks for taking the time to chat today. I know you're a busy dude and it's always a treat chatting with you. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me on again. No worries. So I think a good fan of starting with definitions, um, because I've had discussions in the past where we get like 20 minutes in and then we're like, wait a minute, we don't even have the same definition of this term. And um, I think the term obesity is something that probably everyone's heard at some point, probably maybe more frequently uh, for some than others. But maybe let's start by just like kind of unpacking that. What is obesity? Um, and then after that, maybe we can start talking about the etiology or the causes. So, um, how do you define obesity or what's the definition that resonates with you? Yeah, I think, um, what resonates with me the most is, you know, I think all, all tissues in the body are created equal. And, you know, when we see an imbalance in certain types of tissue, in this case, you know, fat tissue or adipose tissue, um, that's where my definition kind of starts. So I don't use too much like body mass index stuff, which we can Mm -hmm. talk about. But I think it's the body composition that's important. Um, so I think, you know, once we see uh, adipose tissue accumulating in a rate where it kind of uh, makes a, for unhealthy musculature and other parts of the system, that's where we start to see maybe like the true nature of obesity come through because it's, it's normal to have fat tissue. Like we all have it and people have it in varying amounts and it can be quite healthy and a natural thing. But, you know, when we see that ratio of muscle to fat, start to change where adipose tissue becomes kind of a predominant subset or a a large part of your weight um, and then starts to limit other things like it, you know, makes poor blood flow. It kind of makes unhealthy tissue. That's where you see, that's where I like to kind of start to think of it as obesity, where it's like actually negatively impacting your health. So not Mm -hmm. as like a, a superficial layer that, you know, people can think about, but more as like obesity is truly when the adipose tissue is impacting your health. So you're not able to do what you want to do and you don't feel the way that you want to feel. Mm, that's a really good one. I like that because it takes into account some of the nuance. And, you know, I, I've always felt a bit uneasy when someone talks about obesity as a disease, right? And I think the word disease is like a label that you just smack on people and then they got it. Oh God, I have this disease and it, it negates some of the responsibility associated with, you know, like even for example, in the physio clinic, when I was practicing, I would start to diagnose issues I was seeing uh, with names that reflected the root cause. So like I never diagnosed low back pain or I never diagnosed uh, tight hip flexors. I was like, you have chariots. That's literally what you have. And I, and then people were like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I know exactly what I have to deal with because it's in the name yeah. versus like yeah. these long-winded terms that people are like, oh, that sounds really scary. I can't believe I have that. What do I do? So, you know, to me, um, I think obesity is just really a byproduct of harmful behaviors mainly and, and harmful behaviors that most people don't even realize are harmful and namely what we eat um, and when we eat. And like you said, it's characterized by, excessive amounts of fat, which creates a negative impact uh, on a person's health. And um, yeah, really the whole BMI thing, I think it's a little bit too simple. At times I've actually viewed obesity as like, almost like an injury, Um, an injury they're stuck in, right? Like to me, an injury is you did something that caused you harm. You're now suffering symptoms, which are really just a signal for change. And if you don't solve the cause, you get stuck there. And so people are, are stuck in this injury of having excess fat because they don't know what's actually causing it. And I think when you frame it like that, you know, people seem to adopt the definition of injury as this transient thing that you suffer and then you, you go away from, you recover from. And I think if we thought of obesity as, a, as an injury uh, caused by behaviors, uh, I think people would view it a little bit differently. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I think like um, viewing it as something that's transient and not, you know, we talk about a lot of blame used to get put on genetics. I don't think it's so much the case now when you kind of look into it, Um, but it's not kind of like you're predisposed to be overweight or obese and that's the way it is and you can do what you want, but it won't change anything. Um, Mm. You know, I, I disagree with that. I think it's like fully under your circle of control. For sure, genetics play a small percentage, but, you know, we're talking like 10%, right? Um, Mm. and I think it's so much more lifestyle choices. Right. And a lot of times people with obesity kind of have, uh, you know, aches and pains, but 
the pains aren't necessarily due. It gets pointed to, oh, you're obese. You have like a lot of uh, weight around your abdomen. That's why your knees hurt. And you kind of like need to step them back from that and be like, your knees could hurt for a lot of reasons. They're definitely mm. hurt because you're sitting too much, but like a lot of the time, right? So like sometimes obesity totally is the scapegoat for like everything. It's like, yeah. oh, well, this is why you have high blood pressure. This is why you have this. And it's not necessarily the case. It's just really easy to point out because it's a visual marker. When mm. someone walks in, you can often tell and be like, oh, you're obese. Well, and then you like link all their other symptoms into it, which is uh, definitely a mistake that practitioners need to make sure they don't fall into um, because obesity can just be like something you move through and it can be unrelated to all these other symptoms that are going on. Um, so I think, yeah, as long as people view it as something that's as transient and for sure it can be around for five, 10 years, but so can knee pain, so can injuries and it's plastic, right? Plastic meaning it has the ability to change. We have the ability to move through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really important point to make. And I think even before the outset, we should probably just put it, put it out there that obesity is insanely multifactorial, just like anything that afflicts humans. Like there's so many variables that contribute, um, that are each responsible to varying degrees to contribute to this problem. And so it's never like, oh, this is the problem. Just get rid of that. It's like, it's a lot of everything. And the goal is to find out which factor is most, um, most responsible in, in your case. If you have obesity, like it's sure. It's good to understand all the variables, but then it's a matter of like prioritizing, okay, well, what variable do I one feel a locus of control over that I feel I can change. And two is likely affecting this uh, most profoundly. So we're not claiming to know the secrets, but I think um, we have to understand there's a lot of things that contribute, but there are also some very general principles that um, can people can do well with in terms of actually addressing the problem if they understand it um, at some level. And that's kind of the goal today. Like you even said before we were recording, it's like, let's simplify it and let's give pragmatic practical elements that people can kind of take and work with and implement and experiment with. And that's really um, that's where the empowerment part comes from to give people back responsibility for taking ownership over this. Cause at the end of the day, you know, obesity is not a, it's not your body's fault. Um, it's not your doctor's fault. It's a user fault, right? It's the person, um, who's inhabiting that body is creating that problem always unknowingly. do carry a lot of excess fat there are things you're doing that are probably contributing that and knowing what those are is very important to, to solving the problem yeah i think i think it just cut out for a sec there nick i missed the question oh um well it was i was just kind of wrapping up the fact that it's multifactorial and we just have to be mindful of that um and yeah yeah yeah, no, definitely. I think, yeah, that's really important. And I think too, it's important for people to not um, use the visual reference for obesity. So like, you wouldn't want to look at yourself in the mirror and be like, I'm obese because of that. You have to be like, well, how do I feel right now? Right? Like, do I feel like I have lots of energy? Do I sleep well? Do I get up with like, you know, enthusiasm for the day and get out and about? Because if you have all of those, um, you know, likely the, the tissue you have in your body isn't a problem because we can have healthy fat tissue on the body. It's more like you have to internally check and be like, man, do I feel sluggish? Do I sleep poorly? Do I feel like, like, you know, lethargic after I eat? Um, and do I have like this noticeable weight gain? Cause those factors all together are more like obesity and overweight issues that are need to be dealt with. So if you're feeling great and fantastic, but you maybe don't line up with an ideal picture of what, you know, Instagram shows as a person, uh, you're probably a really healthy person. And, you know, this conversation doesn't really apply to people like that. Yeah, that's a good point. And even with that said, I mean, we affect people in such profound ways that are in our environment or uh, whether that's family or community. And the likelihood is most people know someone who is carrying quite a bit of excess fat. So even if if you just have a personal interest in health and you don't, you don't feel like obesity is a problem you face personally, you might know someone who does. And if they're not dealing with it in the right way, maybe you can um, share some of your understanding with them in hopes of expanding theirs. So um, why don't we go to etiology or, or, you know, etiology is just a fancy word for the underlying cause. So what causes obesity? What makes people hold way more fat tissue than what they should? Yeah, and I think the, the easy thing to, to kind of look at here is we see a, a lack of movement, um, not necessarily a lack of exercise, but a lack of movement, meaning that you just don't have this variability of like, 
moving body parts in the day. Like maybe you go and pound out a 30 minute gym session once in the morning, but then you spend the other 23 and a half hours reasonably sedentary. I think mm. that's for one, a big culprit because you know, if you're not moving, your metabolism is quite low and it just doesn't ramp up enough. So, you know, if your metabolism's not that high, you're, you don't need that much food. Uh, a lot of our food that we eat nowadays, you know, we think of this topic of kind of overfed and undernourished. Um, it's empty food. So you go eat like a bagel with white bread and maybe some cream cheese on it. There's a lot of, there's some macronutrients there, you know, in your proteins, fats, and carbs, but the micronutrients are missing, right? Like these trace minerals and vitamins that we need on a daily basis. And when your body has like this white bagel with white cream cheese, you're full, like you've had enough calories per se in, but you haven't had enough of the smaller nutrients in your body knows you need these nutrients. So it's kind of like, Hey, like we need to keep eating because mm. we need these nutrients. Um, and the body is simplistic in that way. So it kind of sends these like hunger signals and this like desire to consume more. Um, but if you keep eating a white bagel with cream cheese, like you're not going to kind of hit that target that it wants. So we see this hunger, but this incorrect style of eating that's to this, these refined food products, these commercialized food products. Um, and it throws off that, you know, the simplistic view of it would be, it throws off the calorie consumption, right? It makes you eat a lot more of the macronutrients, uh, because your body's desiring micronutrients that just aren't there. So we see this low movement in the day and obviously like a increased consumption of, uh, junk foods essentially um, and that's usually where we see this start off and this takes often years to develop it's not like you have this go on for a month and you wake up 60 pounds overweight this is like uh something that starts often when kids are young eight or nine and shows up in their 20s they don't really know how to you know deal with it right away or something maybe they just try to exercise their way out of it which you know rarely is sustainable and by the time they're 35, 40 with a full-time job and kids and a mortgage and all that stuff, they can't out-exercise it anymore um, and it, it gets ahead of them. And that would be maybe more of the classic example I can think of. Lots of ways to get there, but that's the one I see a lot of. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are two really big factors. And, you know, one that jumps out to me is this whole notion that the food landscape now, these companies making food like products or junk food. I love what Mark Hyman says. He's like, there's no such thing as junk food. There's food and there's junk. So these companies yeah. are making this junk, which is literally designed to just be the most delicious stuff ever. Like it just lights up our brain centers, our reward centers. And so food products have become um, this source of calorie or nutrient deficient pleasure where like it feels good to eat this food. It tastes great. It feels good. And I think this whole sense of modern culture being built around not having fundamental needs met, whether it's like fundamental needs for sleep or for movement or for social connection. Um, if you're not having your fundamental needs met, you're going to have some sense of suffering in your life. And if there's this thing that's created out of nowhere uh, that gives you no nutrient input, but gives you this big sense of pleasure, and that can be a source of relief if you're suffering. And so like, I know people that eat when they feel shitty, not because they are hungry, because it's like chocolate chip cookies or chips because it's a, it's a sense of relief it's like a it's like a drug you're you're taking to ease your suffering and i think that's a part of it and i don't think like these food products have been designed as aggressively in our history and so that outlet was never really there and i i also think that society used to be such that most of our fundamental needs were met right like we didn't sit all day in chairs uh we didn't isolate ourselves from others uh, we actually slept right? There wasn't technology and, and, uh, you know, Netflix wasn't there to, to steal our sleep time. So yeah. I feel like that's a part of it too. And almost feeds into like this addiction or reliance on food. And, you know, one thing I really like that Jason Fung says in, in his book, the obesity code is delineating between proximate causes and ultimate causes. Because I think when we say cause, like cause can mean different things. And, you know, he says that the proximate cause is what's immediately responsible and the ultimate cause is what is uh, response kind of setting in motion that leads you to the problem. And one analogy he gives is uh, alcoholism with proximal and proximate and ultimate cause, right? Like the proximate cause of alcoholism is drinking too much alcohol. That's a pretty simple one. Um, but the ultimate cause can be a stressful life situation, 
a sense of suffering, uh, the addictive nature of alcohol, family history of alcoholism. And like, funny enough, all of those kind of hold true for food, right? Like if you're in a really stressful situation or you're eating highly addicted foods or your whole family is just used to eating junk, those can be the ultimate cause of what, um, of eating the wrong types of food. But it doesn't mean, it, it's not, it just takes away from the simplification of just saying, don't eat the shitty foods and it's fine. It's like, well, that's not really the ultimate cause of what's happening. That's just the immediate thing. And it doesn't, doesn't help a whole lot, right? Tell an alcoholic not to drink alcohol. It's like, well, duh, I, I'm not trying to, but there's other things forcing me to. So I think of the, the, the word cause. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And I mean, you can kind of do that with everything, right? Like there's usually so many different factors that influence the way um, people choose to eat and live and I think, you know, now not accessibility to information, but abundance of information is part of the problem because, you know, with any of these things, alcoholism and stuff, if you look online or uh, tap into social media, you have every single answer you could think of to deal with the problem. Um, and most of them won't work because they're kind of really self-reflective pieces often by the author, by maybe what worked for them. That don't encourage self-reflection in the person themselves, but just say, hey, this worked for me. It's going to work for everyone else. So follow right. this pathway. I just gave up junk food. I just gave up alcohol. And that's <laughs> yeah. the solution. And, and you should be able to as well. And I, I think, you know, when people read that or see that, it also becomes a bit of a deterrent, right? Because they go, oh, geez, that's not me. Um, so it is really important to acknowledge all those. There's so many principles. And I think it's important for people to kind of you know, sit down and journal and be like, Hey, like, what are my reasons for eating like this? Mm. You know, like, cause no one can tell you that you have to kind of sort it out for yourself. Yeah. And it's almost like, uh, you know, Gabor Mate has this approach uh, with, with drug addiction where he's like, he doesn't ask, um, he doesn't even go into like why the drug is bad. He says like, why is the drug good for you? Like, what are you getting? That's a positive out of this drug. Cause that, that actually will bring you to, kind of the root cause, the ultimate cause much easier than just harping on why drugs are so bad or why this is going to kill them. And it's almost like, like you said, journaling and having a reflection. It's like when you eat foods that you know, when you eat junk, it's good for you, but you're still eating it. Write down why, like what happened before that, that brought you to a place where you didn't feel great or like ushered you towards eating those foods that you know you shouldn't be eating, but you still can't help yourself but to eat is like, you know, identify what is, what is the precipitating factor. And sometimes that surprises people. I know for me, it's, you know, when I find myself eating a bunch of crap, I kind of think, and I'm like, oh yeah, I do have these two things going on that are really bugging me or, or causing me stress or, or uneasiness or anxiety. And it's like, coincidentally, that coincides to when I'm eating a bunch of shitty food. So I'm looking subconsciously looking for an outlet to ease that discomfort. And I think if we just, and that's, you know, this environment of social media where we constantly have an outlet to distract ourselves means we're not spending as much time just thinking of these things or like reflecting. And I think that's a big element. If we just paid attention to uh, the signals that we're, that are, that we're getting that are bringing up, that could probably be a really powerful learning moment. And like you said, everyone wants answers, but when you're given the answer, number one, the person giving you the answer is not you. So it's probably not the right answer for you. And number two, by getting the answers, you negate any need to learn. And you have to learn about yourself, about why you do these things. And, you know, it's a harder path to go down, but it's the only path you can go down to actually solve it. So. Yeah, no, it's so true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, in terms of the etiology, I mean, I think the big, like, what, what do you think is the bigger, biggest factor? And I mean, this is kind of like the question, but that doesn't have an answer, but, um, yeah. you know, to me, it really boils down to like what you're putting in your mouth. The reason you're doing that varies. The circumstances around, um, your health as a whole obviously vary and have a big impact. But at the end of the day, a lot of it, like, you know, people who you don't, chiefs in tribes because they can just sit all day and eat all the food everyone's getting for them but like you don't people who actually have to go out and hunt for their food um you don't see obese people like i went to a wolf sanctuary in bc there's no obese wolves they eat as much as they need to because it's too expensive energetically to harvest more food than what you need to survive and so at the end of the day it's like 
we're eating the wrong kinds of foods with the wrong frequency at the wrong time. To me, that's like the core essence of where this lies uh, in a simplified version. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's just, it is that simple. And, you know, I think it's, we just have the wrong access to foods, right? Like in reality, we shouldn't have access to a lot of the foods we have such easy access to, or they should be, it should be prohibitively expensive to buy a large bag of chips or something like that. And extremely inexpensive to buy high quality fruits, vegetables, meats, kind of whatever you need. Like we could really change our policies to reflect that. Canada is a bit better than the States. Um, you know, the States, their food stamps cover like pop, like Coca-Cola and stuff. And it's like, how is that a food staple? Right. So I think it's just, there's so many issues kind of affecting like where we get this information from and, and what's subsidized and what comes in. Right. And a lot of it plays into like, there is a financial motive to a lot of this stuff. It's cheap to make chips out of corn and put a little bit of seasoning on them and sell them to you for six bucks a bag. It makes people a lot of money. So they have a lot of motivation to make sure that you want those chips, that you get kind of a reward, a, a dopamine hit or something from having them so that when you're feeling down, that's what you want. You know, there's, there's way too much research that goes into, like they do brain scans to see how this food affects us and they, they engineer it correctly so that it's the ideal food it ticks all the buttons in our brain so you know and part of that is just understanding that you know if, if it's wiring you that way you, you really have to unwire it um so like those drives to consume that food are real they're like truly like inborn drives in us now because if you've had that kind of really think you i mean your brain thinks it's really satiating and perfect but it's mm -hmm. not and it's really like you've been tricked and i think that's why we've talked about a lot like you don't eat food that corporations make for you. You just eat whole foods and it solves this problem like completely. And then once you start like seeing the world that way, you can introduce foods made by corporation. If you feel that you have that ability to kind of limit and control them in a certain way, but most of us won't be able to do that because of the way that they're kind of created to, to make it, to make them addicting essentially. Yeah. And there's, yeah, that's a great point. And, towards the end of um like before we had to stop doing seminars we started incorporating a little bit of like food discussions in our seminar and you know one thing that we talked you understand the difference between food and fun like junk is fun it's a whole lot of fun um but it's not food and if you understand that how to differentiate between those two and you make sure that you are prioritizing eating food and you have fun intermittently and you make sure that that fun is not getting out of control. Um, I think a lot of people are eating fun instead of food or are eating so much fun because of other bad things in their life. And they're just not there. And because of the incentive structure, I mean, you brought up a really good point. It's like, I look at the grocery store these days and it's like a freaking minefield. Like it's literally, it, it's engineered so that the first thing you see is the shit and the last thing you see and the things at eye level are the shittiest things for you. And yeah. like, you know, I heard uh, Elon Musk, he was he of government. He's like, what is the, someone, I'm, and one thing he said that made a whole lot of sense to me. He said, one of the roles of government is to price, is to price unpriced externalities. So for example, like if oil is destroying our planet, then governments should put a tax, a heavy tax on oil to put a price on that externality so that there's something to cover the cost of, of, you know, destroying the environment and maybe disincentivize oil and incentivize other cleaner energy. And we don't price the externality, the negative health effects that junk has on people, right? Like if we had, you know, like you talk about government policy, one of the simplest things would be put a 10% tax on all hyper processed foods with no nutrient content or very low nutrient content and give a 10% subsidy to locally fresh, uh, locally grown fresh whole foods. No net payment has to be made by the taxpayer to implement that. In fact, there's probably going to be way more money made from the junk tax. Uh, um, and that can be put towards like fruition or dealing with problems like obesity and like simple policies like that. You look at them, you're like, why isn't that happening? Like, there's all, like how, is that, how is that not in place already? We, we know these are problems. We know that junk causes health problems and every bag of chips you consume also has a back end cost on your health. And the only explanation is the fact that 
you know, lobbying big food can lobby and, and basically buy the right to make, to, to make sure those policies don't get made. And so I think we, you know, it kind of gets back to this whole thing of the better informed everyone is. And the, the more we understand the basics of food, the more we can vote with our dollars of where we buy our food and what we buy. And also with our actual votes for people who want to change this, right? Like, um, I think there's so many nudges in society to guide us down the wrong path with food. It's not really that big of a surprise. Obesity is a massive problem. Totally. And I think, you know, it falls back again on it's, it's kind of your life and it's, it's in your circle of control and that kind of ownership that people need to take over their lives is really important that, you know, the government's not here to, to look out for you and make sure everything's safe in the food store. And right. the food store is there to make uh, money. Like you can like pay money to have chocolate bars at the tills. That's like right. how it works. It's incentivized <laughs> that way. So like, if that's the way it is, I think people just need to realize that like, it, you know, it's a business and, and the end of the day, the way North America works is the business wins. And if you don't realize that, then it's really easy to get tricked by marketing. Um, and I mean, I've definitely fallen for it and I still fall for it because it's really like, there's intelligent people that make a lot of money that are trying to trick you. Right. Yes. And they're, they're good at it. Yeah. It's like you're a salmon swimming upstream. It's like, Frig, this is so, yeah. you know, I, I heard something really interesting on a Mark Hyman podcast. And I think it was in Peru where they instituted this policy that all hyper-processed foods had to have a red dot on their packaging. And I just thought that was so brilliant because all you have to do with kids is teach them that the red dot means that that's not very good for you. Yeah. You can have it sometimes, but that's not something you should be eating regularly. And I'm pretty sure they, I'm pretty sure like Peru got sued by a bunch of food companies, which is just <laughs> outrageous, but like simple things like that. I think if governments are actually looking out for the best interests of their people. Um, and you know, if you're going to bankrupt your country because of health costs, like, that's probably in your interest too. Um, you know, simple solutions can be very elegant, very simple, and very easy to implement. And you know, at the end of the day, you're going to piss the people who piss people off who are making tons of money, making a lot of people sick. But like, it's okay. They're making enough money. I think companies should be able to make chips and Mars bars, but I also think that they shouldn't be able to sell them um, under the guy, like make them more appealing and and so instantly available that people just buy them all the time totally personal responsibility is kind of a slippery slope sometimes because you know someone who's obese goes to the doctor's office and the doctor says you need to take responsibility to exercise more and eat less well that's kind of i mean that's not actually a viable solution and yet it's being put on people like why are you eating this food? You know, it's like, it's simplified radically so that there's not really any effective understanding given. And then when the person fails, because that doesn't actually work, they feel even worse. And then they're like, well, I can't. On to this problem. Sorry, it just cut out again there, Nick. I'm sure that was an excellent point. <laughs> That's okay. I was just saying that I think sometimes per telling people to take personal responsibility without giving them access to adequate understanding is like plays into the problem, I think, because then people yeah. just feel terrible and then they're like, well, already we're back. Cut out for a sec there. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I kind of what we're chatting on there, Nick, I think, um, you know, personal responsibility is, you know, really important, but I think when someone goes to a healthcare provider, that's them kind of exercising their personal responsibility to seek out assistance when they feel they can't figure it out. And I do think it's up to doctors and other healthcare providers to maybe have a little bit more viable, useful information. Um, because, you know, if you can't sort out what's on the internet, there's too much information and you know, you don't have the tools to solve it. That's kind of when it's a good time to ask for assistance. And, mm. you know, our, our system definitely fails a lot of people. Like the answer is not exercise your way out of this and have like lettuce soup every day. Like it just isn't, that's not, <laughs> it's not how you solve the problem. And that is the baseline recommendations, right? If you look at it, it's like, oh, drink more water and try to sleep more. It's like not good enough. Yeah. And I think 
when someone does, like you said, when someone does reach out, it indicates a willingness and a desire to take action. And if, you know, it might've taken them a while to get there. And if we just waste that by having the person they go see not actually understand how to help them, uh, we need to solve that problem. And yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. Yeah. And then just kind of using that to talk about like, you know, actionable steps for people. I think, you know, when we think about this, I think people just prioritizing movement over exercise. So it's better to move around every day and walk and, you know, have like five to 10 minutes of movement every hour, however you want to break it down. It's more important to do that than to get up for a 30 minute run and sit all day. And I think that's a misconception that a lot of people have that if they get on their treadmill and, and pound out a 30 minute run at 5am in the morning, it's kind of like check done. Mm, yeah. And it's, it's completely the opposite. Like that's an optional movement that you can include in your day for sure. But it's at the end of having this base level of like, you should be walking or biking or moving as, as much as you can. And I think, you know, if people incorporate, well, you're going to get your groceries. Can you walk there? Is the store a couple kilometers away? You're dropping your kids off at school. Can you walk or bike? Like, I think it's more like you got to figure out how to fit movement into your life, not exercise. And I think that's a huge actionable step that really reframes how people think about it because we really like checklists, right? We like kind of going like, well, I did my exercise for the day and I ate my five, you know, fruits and vegetables. And you can do that by 8 a.m. in the morning and then make a lot of poor choices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the second kind of actionable step is like eating whole foods, right? Like just making sure that it's like you eat as minimally processed as close to local as you can find in abundance. So the more whole foods you eat, the better off your system runs. And I think the third part too is, is the community, right? Like if you're surrounded by people that make healthy or unhealthy choices, you're going to tend to make unhealthy choices. And if you're surrounded by people that make healthy choices, you're going to make healthy choices. And I think it's the probably the biggest component is finding a community that supports and kind of models the behavior that you want to, because it's, it is really hard to go upstream with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the misception that cooking is really complicated and hard and, you know, has to be done a certain way, I think is another thing, right? Like people put, people start buying, uh, eating out more or buying quick, uh, you know, already prepared meals. And it's almost like the more they do that, the more, the further away they get from feeling confident that they can actually prepare their own food. And I think sometimes, you know, it's a matter of empowering people to be like, you can't really, like if you buy real whole food ingredients like maybe it doesn't taste perfect the first time you prepare it but you can still do it like there's not really it's not like chemistry where if you don't do it the things are going to explode like it's still good food um and you and and also it's like the first time you cook you're gonna suck like you're not gonna be that good and that's like anything in life you're not the best the first time you try something but every time you do it if you're actually paying attention and kind of thinking like oh i wonder if i did this differently next time well maybe i'll drop that down in this little booklet I keep in the kitchen and you do it. The more you do it, the more confidence you build, the more you realize, wow, I can cook my own food. Wow. I'm making things that taste really good now. Maybe I'll ask Jenny at the office, what she makes, how she makes her salads, right? It's like, like you said, it's like building a bit of confidence, having a community bounce ideas off of um, building more confidence by just kind of sharing ideas. And it kind of spirals in a good direction. And I think you hear stories sometimes of people that have just hit like a catastrophic health problem. And then they're like, I have no choice but to change the way I eat. And they do it. And they're like, that wasn't that hard. Why the hell yeah. didn't I do that earlier? And, and I think if we can convey that, that eating whole real food um, can be simple, can be delicious um, and can be done like even in a chaotic life. And, you know, I hear all the time too, I don't have time to cook. I get home from work. The kids are, are screaming. They just want to eat. I just have to make something. It's like, the easy way is to just throw something in the microwave. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'll ask them like, like, what is the actual obstacle that's stopping you from cooking? And they say time. I'm like, well, where do you spend your time in the evening? And like, where, like, could you go to work an hour earlier um, and leave an hour earlier and have more time available so you're not rushing? 
and they kind of like don't have a good rebuttal for that. So it's, I think it's like they've made up their mind. They don't have enough time to cook. Therefore, they have to do prepared food. But if you ask them questions to kind of challenge some of the assumptions they've made and decided on, then they're like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, I could do that. And so it's not that people are trying to not eat well. It's just I think they've they create like these artificial barriers for themselves because life is just so overwhelming these days. And I, and I completely understand that. But it kind of boils down to like, how much do you prioritize? Do you understand how much food affects you, the way you feel, the way you sleep, the way you move, your health? Because if you don't, then food's not important enough to prioritize. Um, then what are like the first little baby steps you can take to start to take more responsibility with your food? And, you know, I think the, the last podcast we did about gluten or even the first podcast we did about food um, yeah give some really practical suggestions of like how people can just start to build a deeper relationship with their food, a, a healthier relationship with food. Totally. And I, you know, I usually it's uh, if people feel like they have the ability to do it, it's, it's, it is great to do a full kitchen overhaul and throw out all the junk food and start again. But uh, that's like a costly process and a time consuming process. So yeah. what I usually recommend is, you know, if you work Monday to Friday, start with one meal, the easiest meal, if you eat it, is breakfast. I think breakfast is the easiest because you're not tired at the end of the day. Like you, you got that 20 minutes in the morning or you should wake up a bit earlier. So you have the 20 minutes in the morning and, and figure out how to make like healthy, easy breakfast, right? And whole foods, like a great example is uh, oatmeal. You know, in almost every of the fad diets, oatmeal is acceptable. <laughs> uh, so start with a base of oatmeal. Oatmeal is easy to cook. You boil water and you put oats in and then you just kind of build on that right like i like to put in a bit of nut butter in the oatmeal and then i put berries and nuts and seeds but you can do whatever but it's like you build this base of you know i i guarantee everyone can boil water and put some oats into it um and then you just play around what do you like in it do you like to put blueberries into it do you like to put you know some walnuts um like spices like cinnamon but you can take this base this simple base and Every time you make it, you can add in a little bit. Um, and it, it really becomes a simplistic thing where you, you'll show yourself in a week how easy it is to cook something and how easy it is to change it. Like, be like, man, I like blueberries are disgusting and I'm never going to put them in my oatmeal again. We'll make it different the next time, right? And right. you end up with a breakfast pretty quickly that you enjoy having that's, you know, it's nutritious, it's inexpensive to make. Um, and if you learn a couple different variations of different foods to add, you can make it taste different every day too. Um, you know, you can do the same thing with like a blender, right? Like a blending a smoothie in the morning takes, you know, the better part of five minutes. Everyone's got five minutes. And I think it's just more like, for sure, you got to plan ahead. You got to buy the oatmeal. You got to buy the greens to put in the blender. But, you know, once you do that, when you shop, that's in your habit to, you know, why well, buy my greens for my smoothie. And once you get breakfast sorted, you can move on to other things. But I think breakfast is the easiest because it sets you up for the day. If you're going to eat it and if you choose not to fast and eat breakfast, it sets you up for the day. But even if you're choosing to fast, you can still make breakfast and put it in a mason jar and bring it with you and eat it when you're ready to break your fast or something. But it, it just gives you this healthy alternative right off the bat. And a lot of people find when they start doing that and they feel good throughout the day, like their energy is sustained, they, they don't have junk food cravings, well, then they've got more energy to make dinner in the evenings. So I think it is better to start, you know, in the morning rather than be like, it's kind of like the put it off thing, right? Well, I'm not going to go for a run this morning. I'll go for a run in the evening. And then in the evening, you're tired and you're like, I'll go for a run tomorrow morning. And it just kind of gets pushed on and on. Whereas if you wake up right. and go, okay, I'm going to make a healthy breakfast. And at least if I've made a healthy breakfast, I've done like, you know, 30% of my nutrients today are healthy and 30% of your nutrients being healthy is better than 0%. So it's just like, and yeah. positive choices create positive choices. So if you start off doing that, you know, instead of like reaching for a, a muffin and a double, double, you're going to just kind of influence your whole day to making positive choices. Yeah. And, you know, I always, when I talk to people, I always ask them like, it's, you know, a lot of people just prioritize perfection. They think they got to make like the craziest breakfast ever. It's like the <laughs> yeah. goal isn't perfect. The goal, goal is just better, right? Like, yeah. Like if you have one extra good thing in your breakfast, you're doing better. You don't have to do like the most fantastic 
trendy, healthy breakfast smoothie in the world because you're just intimidated by the how difficult it's going to be to do that. Yeah. And I remember I had one, I had one patient uh, and we talked about food quite a bit because he, he was quite overweight. And every single morning he would go and like, this is an example of small baby steps and how they kind of like trickled into a domino effect every day on his way to work. Um, you know, he, he said he woke up tired every day because I don't think he slept very much or very well. And so we had the conversation of like, well, like, why do you think you don't sleep very well? And so he started to kind of like create a bit of a, of, of a deadline for when he would stop watching uh, like Netflix or, or TV. And, and that helped. So he didn't feel as strong of a pull to eat shitty food in the morning because he was sleeping a bit better. And then the next um, part of it was, you know, every morning he would drive to Tim Hortons, he would buy a double double and he would buy a bagel and a donut. I'm like, dude, this is like, like that, that is not, not food. Dude, you're just having fun and then you're having to have fun the rest of the day because your body's like, give me more, give me more. Yeah. And the first move for him, he's like, should I not go to Tim Hortons? I was like, no, 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 keep going. Just tomorrow, just get one cream in your coffee. Don't get a double donut. Yeah. That's it. You still have the donut, muffin, whatever. Like keep having that. And then he's like, oh, like I see him a couple weeks later. He's like, that wasn't that hard. That was great. And he yeah. was like, I had a sense of accomplishment. And then I was like, all right, well, maybe one day a week you make like, like, I don't even care what you get. Just like buy friggin' cereal. Who cares? Um, and have that at home instead of going to Tim Hortons. And started with that. And then, you know, like eventually I saw him for like a follow-up issue with a low back problem. Like a year later, he's like, yeah, I don't go to Tim Hortons anymore. I realized that stuff's terrible. I was, and part of it was like, that's amazing. Because that guy, I was like, in all real realistic um, respects, I had I didn't have much hope that he would stop going to Tim Hortons. But it was really cool to hear that, like, you know, we started with just not put as much sugar in your coffee in the morning. And then he kind of like, I think he started to feel the difference where he didn't feel like he had to go have like another another item of junk early midday on his break. He was uh, he worked at a machine shop and like it was great. And it was just an example of him tuning in, doing tiny little things, things that were way smaller than he would have done. Because he's like, what's that going to do? Like, I know I have to stop eating this stuff in the morning, but getting a little bit less sugar in my coffee is not going to make the world change. But it's like, over time it does. So I think totally. I start small. Yeah, I think that's such a good example. Um, I, there's a fascinating guy out there. Have you heard of Andrew Huberman? That like yes. neuro guy? Yeah, he's, awesome. he, he's so good at kind of breaking down complex concepts. And I'll butcher this one a little bit here, but he kind of talks about how you know, dopamine, like our reward um, uh, system, uh, when we get a little hit of dopamine, uh, we feel good. We feel like kind of positive and like we're working towards the right thing. And it kind of blocks or lowers the levels of norepinephrine, like which when they get high, give us like kind of a quit mechanism or a, like you kind of give up. Um, so if you manage your expectations with small goals and reward them consistently like that and keep giving yourself dopamine hits, you know, like, one less cream, one less sugar, maybe instead of like a, you know, a double chocolate glazed donut, I'll just get a tin bit, you know, <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> yeah, exactly. he's, but he's like rewarding himself each time. And then he's feeling yeah. more positive and then he has more energy um, to kind of like work towards goals. I think that's the perfect example. And that, that's kind of what I get people to do with the oatmeal thing too, is it's like this small thing that you can do. And I know people can do it. And then they get like they're rewarded like literally intrinsically rewarded and then that just leads that cycle to like well i want to get feel more rewards because that feels good and it yeah. also lowers that that quit mechanism that like end of the day like you're just done and you just want to like pretty much lie on a couch and do nothing like that feeling can be kind of changed if you're rewarding yourself the right way throughout the day like you can get home with an abundance of energy um, you know, this is another conversation, but energy is not this like linear thing at all. Like it's something that can be like increased or decreased on factors other than just like it decreases throughout the day and increases as I sleep. Um, and I think it's important for people to know that, that if you give yourself small rewards, you'll have a way better chance of success. Yep. I agree. <laughs> and for someone who, you know, may have gone through three or four different types of diets, um, and those diets involving like just mass deprivation, like it was a royal struggle and was unsuccessful. The first small win they have, like they shift their perspective to smaller and they have a win. That might be the sweetest win ever because they might not have had one for a really long time. Yeah. And we underestimate the potency of small wins to create a chain of, of other wins. Um, and I think that's, 
I think a lot of times it's just, you know, and part of it is the factor that when you go see a doctor, you have a certain amount of time, they have a limited amount of understanding. There's, you can only like take a macro view of the problem, like stop eating junk food. Like that might be the only thing you can fit in or you might know how to do. But if we just knew how to do these little tiny things and get people interested in feeling good that they're actually succeeding and giving, getting them to build more and more confidence for them to then like reach further outside of their box to be like, maybe I can understand food. Maybe I should buy a food book. You know, like it might take a lot of wins to build up the confidence to be like, I can read a book about food and, and understand yeah. it deeper. Like we just need to focus on that. And um, you know, if people did that, the exponential dividends that you get on just like slightly better on a regular basis is like, it's shocking. Yeah. And it's, that's, that is the way to success, right? It's these small micro wins that end up in success. Uh, you rarely see a positive long-term change from a massive shift because they're just not sustainable. It requires a large amount of like willpower or right. however you want to think of it to, and, and that has a finite kind of range. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. Obesity is definitely a, um, I mean, like I said before, when, before we started, it's like you can go down a rabbit hole and get into the hormonal effects. You can get into all of the past ways that we've thought about obesity and all the different physiological mechanisms. But really superficially, it's like if you want to just think big picture and give people principles instead of telling them exactly what to do, it's really just about understanding that small changes compound over time. If you prioritize eating real nu nutrient-dense whole foods and start to remove some of the junk that you might be mistaking as food, um, those changes will have a profound effect over time. And, and really doing those small changes is the only way to do it sustainably. And I think so many diets are just have the short term mindset. If you do anything with health, you have to think long term. And, you know, I, it kind of pisses me off to see all these diets that prey on our, our, our desire for instant gratification and like promising some solution, instant solution to a long term problem that you've been facing. It's like, obviously, people are going to jump at that because that sounds great. Oh, you can make me not obese in six weeks. Duh. Yeah. Take yeah. my wallet, you know? Yeah, and well, totally. Like, but they're designed for failure. That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, they're designed for failure because how do you get people to sign up the next time if they're fit and healthy? You know, exactly. it's the way, way don't let, uh, don't let businesses make those decisions for you. It's the moral for all of these stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great moral. And you know, for, <laughs> for people out there that work in government and, and make decisions on a national level, like you can make some really simple changes that aren't for anyone else apart from the people making massive amounts of money at the expense of our health that can really nudge us in the right direction right and even grocery stores like i think that there's a market um for a new type of of uh, grocery store one that is literally engineered for uh for health so that the same incentives where you walk in and you know, all of the shittiest things are right in front of you at eye level is completely reversed. And, and there are stores like that. Like I've been to some places in Australia that like literally didn't have anything that was highly processed. And so if you walk in there, you can buy some of the fun stuff because it actually contains some semblance of real food in it. And I think that's really powerful because then all people have to do is make the one-time choice of going to the right place. And they don't have to be at risk of being fooled or, or roped in once they're in there to buying all the wrong things. And I think that, you know, I think there's space for, for a, a chain of grocery stores or even like a side project of a big company to be like, okay, well, we're going to make a place that is like a sanctuary for health in, in the realm of food and even include food education offerings, right? Like even the LCBO does this, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, they have like these events that people can come and learn about all the different wines. It's like, why don't we do that for food? Oh, totally. um, why don't we have food education sessions, right? Like that builds stronger customer relationships for people wanting to go back and buy food from, from you. And I just think we can, we need to like create like grocery store 2.0 and, and let people know that, that, you know, you can literally be healthy by shopping here and have that actually be true. So I think that'd be really cool to see. Yeah, and that, I think that's how you help create change on a more macro level, right? Instead of this individualistic thing, it definitely is like, it's not a it's not one person's problem. This is definitely like a national issue that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's how you create, you know, more systemic change, like bigger changes. We need the government or, or people with power and influence to, to choose to influence in a way that reflects health instead of, uh, you know, revenue or gross profit. <laughs>
Yeah. And it would be really nice to see um, like doctors referring people suffering with obesity to a place that gives them a deeper understanding of the problem. Can it really help them? Right. Like instead of, uh, instead of saying what you've always said um, and may have said to that person before, but clearly isn't working because it's the problem's not changing. Uh, like build relationships with people, you know, maybe, maybe a nutritionist or just a like lifestyle coach, whatever it is, someone that understands food and direct those people to that person to build a relationship long-term and actually like spend time on the problem because it is, I mean, we didn't really talk much about it, but like carrying excess fat to, has a massive cost uh, on your global health. Like it just carries a huge burden on and, and decreases the amount of years you're going to have in your life. And not just that, but the quality of the years you're going to have, like it really does. It's kind of like this invisible thing where it's visible in that we can see people that are carrying excess fat, but all of the trickle down effects of carrying excess fat in terms of overall health and well-being and, and happiness, um, I think are really hard to consider, right? It's like, it's like trying to put a price on what bees do. It's like, it's so deep and so complex and so varied that you can't really do it. And I think same thing with obesity, um, the health costs, the, the macro health costs of being obese is really high. And uh, if people knew that and actually felt like they could actually learn enough about it to really, you know, make changes um, and not just keep failing at these short-term diets, I think that's a big part of the problem. It's just re giving new perspective to this problem saying like, there is hope. This can be a temporary thing. You can get rid of this, but we need to take like a, a deeper look at how to empower people than just saying like, move more, eat less. Cause that's, it's really kind of bullshit. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and you know, I, I really don't think it's uh, doctors don't have enough time to kind of have that sort of ability to talk to people about it. So I think, you know, the best thing that healthcare providers can do that have short amounts of time to get through lots of patients, which is necessary right now, um, is to have like pamphlets or handouts that provide like really nice basics, like simple steps, like we talk about with contact information. So if people have, you know, want to look more into it, or it's like reliable sources where you can look into it, it hasn't been influenced by, you know, finances, or, you know, we look, even the food pyramids get influenced by like, industries which is crazy um yeah. so it's like, like it becomes this thing where like you just need actionable pamphlets where it's like here's the steps you can take in this order you know walk every day eat whole foods find community you know if you want more help here's some local practitioners or yeah. online practitioners that can direct you in the right way it, it is it's truly that simple <laughs> I, I agree yeah. and one thing so we're starting this local community project this coming year and one of the things we're going to offer are guided groceries. So you just, you go with a foot nerd to a grocery store and you do groceries with them. You do your groceries, but the foot nerd just comes and like answers questions or gives little tidbits. It's like food education, intra uh, shopping. Like it's while you're shopping, you're kind of learning little tidbits. And um, I think that'll be, I don't know how it'll go, um, but it'll be a fun pilot to do because uh, I think, I think it would be really handy to, to embed the education within the experience of buying food. Um, so, yeah. yeah, no, I think that's good. Um, I used to do that here quite a bit before it was, um, you know, old COVID times. Um, but I used to, it used to be like something where you could, you know, you pay a price and like, I could either come to your kitchen or your grocery store, but usually both. So we'd go to the kitchen and be like, okay, this is what, you know, we can remove within financial reason. This is stuff we take out. And then you go to the grocery store and you fill it up with the right stuff. Um, and it just, it's like some, a lot of people just need that reset, that kind of conversation around, okay, it's usually like not eliminate this and have this. It's like, well, we switch this for that. So, you know, we take uh, white rice and you buy quinoa or brown rice. You take, you know, potatoes and maybe you have a little more variety. You have potatoes, some squash, some sweet potatoes, some yams, and you just kind of shift those principles a little bit. And all of a sudden you've got variety in the diet. You've got a food that's easy to cook. Um, if everyone's looking for an easy thing to cook, I think buy a, buy a bag of sweet potatoes and you just wash them and put them in the oven and you cook them there. It's literally that simple. It's like an easy meal, like, uh, that you pay in the frozen section for, and it's just done. And it's like a whole food, super nutritious. So most food is like that. It just, prepares itself in the same amount of time that a frozen meal does once you have the knowledge how to do it. I don't think 
I don't think most healthy food takes a long time to prepare. I think there's, you know, there's foods that do take a long time to prepare that are nice to make once a week or once a month, but the majority of foods isn't made out of a recipe book and you're not putting in 30 ingredients. The majority of foods are like five ingredients, some are cooked, some are in a salad and it mm -hmm. tastes good because you know how to assemble it well. Yep. Yeah. And so like kind of in, in summary to, to wrap up, I think, I think a journal, um, I think some sort of daily notes is, is like this important factor that we don't talk enough about. This is just my opinion, but I, I really think that if you, if people are given a tool um, that facilitates self-reflection and is like very obvious, like you have a, a little booklet or a little composition book that sits in your kitchen. And every time you go to grab food, you just write like, what time is it? And what am I going to eat? And then maybe like, if you feel like shit, right. It's X amount of time. And I don't feel great. What did I eat a couple hours ago? Like people just don't make those connections. And I think that it can tease out a lot of the relationships that kind of fly under the radar that people just don't realize have a, have a cause. Like when you feel terrible and low energy, the quality of your sleep and the food that you ate are, in my opinion, the two biggest factors that contribute to that. And if you just knew that, if you, if you could build that connection, um, then it allows you to self-regulate way more effectively and make changes way more effectively. And so, you know, for me, the two take-homes would be have like some kind of record keeping where you just like write little notes to yourself to remind yourself of, you know, what you're eating, when you're eating, what made you want to eat this? Um, how do you feel at different times? If you feel really good or really terrible, write it down beside a time. And then maybe once a week you go in there, spend 10 minutes and be like, well, I felt terrible here, here, and here. This is what I ate here and here and here. Hmm, there seems to be a pattern. Um, and then not under underestimating power of small changes, like prioritize better over perfect. And it can be as infinitesimally small as you want, but the goal is just to continue um, making like a slightly better decision every day. And that rolls into big changes. Um, any take homes for, for the community on your part? Yeah. And I think those are great, Nick. I think like just finding small actionable steps. I, I think the, the journal is the most powerful tool. So that's what I would yeah. say for people to start with is just like after even after sleep like after everything after a workout like mm -hmm. what's your energy level like what's your mood do you feel kind of down do you feel pretty energetic it yep. really helps you refine and figure out oh geez i feel good after those foods but not these foods like we talk about food allergies and that's one thing but food intolerances or sensitivities are really common and everyone is varied in what feels good and what doesn't digest mm -hmm. well um you can do like a million pinprick tests and stuff like that but you won't ever really know until you write stuff down like uh i found i used to eat a lot of bread as i'm sure a lot of people do and i would you know have a sandwich at lunch and i was like man at two o'clock every day i feel like i'm going to be sleeping wherever i am on a bus yeah. at a desk like i am having a nap <laughs> yeah and it's like what's going on and then you're like man like I didn't, I don't manage the carbohydrates from bread that well, like even healthy. So I had to make sure that, okay, I can't have, if I'm at a busy workday, I can't have like a high carby meal. I can have like salads or proteins or fats. That's fine. But if I do like high carbs, I need to nap. And okay. So I can choose if I have time to nap, that's fine. But if I don't want to nap, I just have to change it. And I, you know, wouldn't have put that together. And it seems simple when you talk about it. I would have never put that together. <laughs> in right. Oh, I've right? had so many of those experiences as well. And like when, it, when you see those and you get the light bulb moments, it hits you extra hard to be like, what else am I not figuring out? <laughs> like, I want to totally. keep doing this. Yeah. And it, it's nice. And I think it gives people, you know, we talk about giving people a bit of power back, right? It gives you a bit of power. You're like, oh, geez, like I realized that and I changed it and I felt better. And then you're like, geez, I, maybe I can influence other things. Right. And it's, it is important, I think, for people to know, like you totally have the ability to influence your own health and to feel really excellent. Um, you might need a little bit of like steps to start off. But, you know, once you're I feel like Nick and I are in good places here. Once you're like in a decent spot, it, it really becomes effortless because it's just a habit and the choices you make are just already kind of made for you. Um, and it's just really nice to live with like energy and sleep well and like tick all these boxes without thinking about it. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I still eat. I still eat junk. I still have days where I don't feel good. Like I have good energy, but the goal is to increase the frequency of the days where you do feel good and have good energy and, and to just improve your ability to detect what, what's causing uh, the disruptions.
And I think you, you're probably in the same boat where it's like the more you do of this and tune into your experience and, and try and like be a detective for these patterns, um, the easier it becomes to correct when you kind of get off course. And I think that's, you know, anyone who claims to never go off course is either lying or just <laughs> yeah. like, I've never met a person like that. So um, totally, it's just a matter of self-regulating. And, and we do all have the, we all have the innate, in, we have a baseline level of intelligence, all of us to be able to understand food. The question is whether you find it to be a big enough priority and, and, and just know that like most of the lessons you need to learn to have a better relationship with food can only be learned by you. No one yeah. can teach you them. And once people know that, I think we reach less for the other person to help us and we discover more of our kind of inner potential to like understand things, even seemingly complex things that actually turn out to be really simple. I always tell people nutrition is insanely complex. Good news is you can know nothing about nutrition, have a really good relationship with food because those two things have, have diverged quite a bit. So focus on food, less on nutrition. Um, Matt, thank you for taking the time today. It's always, it's always great hearing your take on things because I think a lot of our perspectives are similar, but sometimes the way we articulate them can be different. And I, I love uh, stealing from people that are really smooth with saying, <laughs> you know, similar perspectives. So, um, yeah, thank you very much uh, to all of you listening. You know, we hope that that shed some light on, you know, the word obesity, what it means, common causes, and, and more importantly, practical tips on if you do have uh, more fat, if you are carrying more fat than you think, uh, than, than is ideal for you, um, then hopefully there's some strategies, you know, kind of hidden in there that you can um, take and run with and implement and experiment with. Because that's really all this is, is just try, be open-minded to try uh, different experiments, try new things and, um, you know, pay attention enough to know what's working and what isn't and just keep making progress. Cool. Thanks everyone. Catch you next time.